congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you have an office? Now, if somebody asks you, do you have an office? Perhaps the first thing that comes into many people's minds is a desk and, and, and a chair and a computer and perhaps some kind of a telephone. That's how most people will think if we just go out there onto the street in downtown St. Albert and ask people, do you have an office? That's what they'll think. But we know, and we talked about that last week, we heard about that last week in the preaching, that office for the Christian is something solemn. It is a holy calling from God with a defined set of responsibilities. That's what office is in terms of Uh, something that's more than just computers and chairs and desks. It's a special role and function. And there are special offices in this world that receive special unction or special anointing. And one of them we sang about at the beginning of the service, Psalm 133, speaking and singing about the anointing oil that is poured on Aaron's head and then flows down his beard and down to the collar or to the hem of his robes. So the priests were anointed to a special office. And so were the kings and so were the prophets. We don't have a lot of scriptural data about the anointing of the prophets, but we do have a little bit. If you turn in your Bible, uh, if you can, to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19, and we'll get the the king and the prophet in the same verse here. 1 Kings 19, verse 16. And in 1 Kings 19, verse 16, the Lord is instructing the prophet Elijah. And he says, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. So there's the anointing of the king. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And so there's a lot more that can be said, but just making it very simple, very summarized here, the scripture teaches us of the three special offices, priest, king, prophet, prophet, priest, and king. And we heard about that last week, that these were all in Adam and Eve. They weren't kept in Adam and Eve but they are kept and fulfilled perfectly in our Messiah, which children, you know what that means, right? Messiah means anointed. It's the same word as in Greek, Christ. Christ, anointed, Messiah, all the same word, just different languages. Now, when people were called to a special office and they were anointed with the anointing oil, that rite, that ritual had a sacramental significance. It wasn't just pouring some oil on somebody's head. But that physical act which you could see pointed to a spiritual reality. And we get an idea of that if we turn to 1 Samuel 16, 13. This is a very, very important text for us to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in ordination and in calling and anointing to office. So 1 Samuel 16 Verse 13. You know, the, the background, of course, is that David was called to be king. He, uh, sorry, Saul was called to be king. He was unfaithful. So then David was anointed in his place. Now, look what happens with the anointing and with the Spirit. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Samuel visits Jesse and his sons. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This is David. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. 
You see the connection there? The anointing is just not some bare physical act, but it comes with deep spiritual significance. The Holy Spirit rushes upon David. Now, David was a believer already. His heart was already turned towards the Lord. This is not the Holy Spirit coming upon him to regenerate him. The Holy Spirit does many works. He regenerates hearts. He brings forth the new flowers and the new buds and the new life in the spring. He gives breath and life to everybody, including the unbelievers, are breathing in and out every moment because of the work of the Spirit. But here the Spirit rushes upon David in terms of his office. He's called, he's anointed, and he is equipped. The Spirit of God comes upon him for his office. Now look at the next verse. The very next verse. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now when the Holy Spirit begins the work, he completes it. When he regenerates a heart, he never unregenerates it. So this is not saying that Saul was a believer, then he wasn't later. This is saying that at that moment when David was anointed to be king, the Spirit came upon David and equipped him for that task and left Saul, stopped helping him, stopped equipping him for his office. And that's why Saul's kingship becomes a train wreck. Because he no longer does it in the power of and with the help of God. And so anointing ordination points to a deep spiritual meaning, the equipping, the pouring out of the Spirit. And as we heard last week, Adam failed on all three counts, prophet, priest, and king. Christ, the last Adam, he fulfilled the offices perfectly, and he was ordained. Last week we mentioned his ordination and his baptism. This week we'll go to Acts chapter 10, verse 38. If you can flip there, if you have a chance, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, where the apostle says this about our Lord Jesus. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. There we go. The Spirit poured out on someone for their office so that they do the work they're called to do in the power of the Spirit and not in their own power. And because Jesus is or was anointed, he is called Christ. That is his title. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Messiah anointed. Well, we heard about that last week, but this week we move on to a question in the Catechism, which is, well, if Christ is called Christ because he's the Messiah, because he's anointed, why do you bear the name Christ? Why are you called a Christian? Because that's what the word is, right? Christian. You're connected to the name of Christ. You bear the name of Christ. Why? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 11, verse 26. If we go to Acts eleven twenty-six, 26, this is where in the scriptures we, we read about the first time that the uh, disciples were called Christians. Eleven twenty-six of Acts, look at the end of that verse. This is the church at Antioch. And in Antioch, the last sentence in the verse, in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Why? Why were they called Christians? This was a church 
made up of Jews, but also many Gentiles. You can look at verse 20. It speaks about coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also. Those are the Greeks. These are the non-Jewish people. And look at verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. So this is a, a wonderfully new phenomenon. A bunch of God worshipers who probably are majority non-Jewish. This is a, a radical new thing. So they weren't born in the covenant. They weren't called Christians because they were, they were born and from their birth were part of God's people. They were Greeks. They weren't called Christians because they married into God's people. Because they didn't. They didn't have connections by birth or by marriage to God's covenant people. What was the connection they had to Jesus? The connection was faith. What united them to Christ and to each other was faith that they shared in the Holy Spirit. And you see that, that that was the character of the church. You see that in verse 24, for instance of chapter 11 of Acts, because who was working here was Barnabas. And look what he says, verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's what was the unifying principle of the church at Antioch. Not birth, not marriage, but faith and fullness and sharing in the Holy Spirit. And that's how Cornelius, the centurion, and his relatives and friends also became part of the church. Cornelius, of course, was a Roman. And in Acts chapter 10, we read about him coming into the church and being baptized. If you flip back in your Bible one page and look at Acts chapter 10, verse 44, you know the story about Cornelius and the centurion and how the Holy Spirit sent Peter to preach to him. And Peter's preaching the gospel to him. And what happens when Peter preaches to him and his friends and his relatives? Chapter 10, verse 44 of Acts. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, as you go through the scriptures, pay attention to that. Spirit, word. Word, spirit. They always come together. You can't expect the spirit to be working with power where the word is not being preached in power and in faithfulness. And so Peter preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls upon the hearers. And what does, how do they become members of the church? Again, these are people, they haven't been born in the people of God. They're Romans. These are people that do not have married into the people of God. What is the connection they have to the people of God, to the church of God, to the Son of God? The connection they have is that they believe. They believe in the Word. And when they believe in the Word, then what does Peter say? Look at verse 48. He says, listen. Or verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter says, listen, they've got the reality. We may as well give them the sign. They have not become part of the covenant people of God by birth, by marriage, or by circumcision, but they have the power and the most profound significance of being in covenant with God. They have God himself 
coming to dwell in their hearts and being poured out upon them. And therefore, they must receive the external sign which witnesses to that fact. So why am I belaboring this point? Well, look at the first line of the catechism. Why are you called a Christian? Not because I was born in the church. Not because I married somebody that was a member of the church. But I am a member of Christ by faith. Look at those last two words. By faith. That's what connects us to the Lord Jesus. And our baptism is glorious. And being born in a Christian family is glorious. And being baptized as a child is glorious. It is a sign of a rich and a deep and a glorious and multifaceted significance. It is a precious treasure. And it tells us, you belong to Christ. His name is upon you. His blood washes you. His Father provides for you and protects you. His Spirit lives in you and applies to you the benefits of Christ and renews you and prepares you for glory. That's what your baptism preaches to you. And you carry it with you wherever you go. Children, young people, adults, old people, we all have the gospel marked on our foreheads in our baptism. But none of this is automatic. None of this just kind of happens. It's not like when you're part of God's people, when you're part of the church, when you're part of the covenant community, it's not like getting on the bus, giving the conductor your ticket, And saying to him, wake me up when we get to heaven. And then fall asleep. And that's how some believers treat their baptism. But it doesn't work. Because baptism only is meaningful if it incites us and if it inspires us to embrace its meaning by faith. Look at those last two words of the first sentence in the catechism. I am a member of Christ by faith, not by birth. Not by marriage, but by faith. All the glorious privileges of the covenant, all the rich blessings of bearing the name, all the blessings of being brought up and living in the environment saturated in the word and in worship, all of this must be embraced and must be appropriated by faith. So we are called to believe. And if we don't, if all of these rich blessings do not meet with faith, well, what does the scripture say? Why did many of the people of Israel not enter into the promised land? Because the promises of the covenant were not met with faith in the hearers. And I want to take this moment here to put a solemn warning and exhortation before us all. And before our children, turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. If you can, in your Bible. I know it's a little bit uh, challenging sometimes to follow along as we look up all the text, but it's helpful to actually see the words in the Scripture if you have the chance. And it fixes it in your mind. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, the Lord Jesus has been called by a centurion to come heal his servant. The Lord Jesus says, I'll come, and the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy. Don't bother coming. You're too important. Just, you just say the word, and it's going to happen. I believe that you have that power. And look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. What do we learn from this scripture? Jesus gives us a solemn warning. He says, you know, this guy is not a member of the covenant people, but he believes. He has faith, such faith as I have not seen in my own covenant people. And I'm going to tell you something, he says to his disciples. On the great and final day, and throughout all of history, Many will come to sit at the table and celebrate the supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. They will come from east and from west, from all the nations. And by faith they will enjoy all of these, the fullness of the gospel into all eternity. But there will be sons of the kingdom who won't be at the feast. They'll be outside in the darkness. Now who are these sons of the kingdom? These are members of the covenant. These are people who have the sign of the covenant on their bodies, whether by circumcision back then or baptism now. And because the promises of the covenant have not been met with faith, they have no part in Christ. And they will be in the outer darkness. And so that's a solemn warning to us all, brothers and sisters that we pray for the regeneration of our children. The baptism form says it. Our children are born in sin. They cannot enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. doesn't happen automatically. That's why we bring our little kids to church as soon as possible, because when God speaks, things happen. And the Holy Spirit works faith in little hearts, even through big, complicated sermons. Believe me. The Spirit can work even in long and complicated theological sermons. He can take those truths and apply them to the hearts of our children and work new life in their hearts. We need to be working on that and praying for that. So we and our children are, are members of Christ, not by birth, not by faith, oh, sorry, not by marriage, but by faith. Now, marriage is a beautiful thing, and family ties are beautiful things, and we praise God for them, but they don't define the church. That's a challenge for us. We are a church, which is a very tightly knit uh, community. We are tightly knit by marriage and by blood ties. And we need to be reminded that the church is not a sociological phenomenon. It is a spiritual truth. This is a community of Faith. This is the family of faith. What unites us is faith. That's why we confess every Sunday again. Our faith. That's what ties us together, and it ties us together with the church Catholic. And so the brother from Pakistan, or from the Philippines, or from Canada, who doesn't have a Dutch uh, background, a Dutch immigrant background, the brother or the sister with no family blood and no family marriage ties in our congregation, is closer to me than my birth and my blood brother who rejects Jesus. Baptism 
tells us that water is thicker than blood. It turns around the common use of that saying. And so that's the first line in our catechism. I am a member of Christ by faith. And when we are in Christ by faith, he is the head, and we are the body, the church, and individually members of the body. Now, what happens when you take some oil and you pour it over someone's head, if there's a lot of it? Well, it runs down. Gravity does its work. And we sang Psalm 133. The the oil runs down onto the beard, down to the, the collar of his garment. But the word collar there in Psalm 133, the Hebrew word collar, refers to a hem, which can be at the top or can be at the bottom. And I think you would know and agree with me that the oil is not going to stop right here. It's just going to keep flowing right down to the bottom of his garment. That's the hem we're talking about. So what does that mean for us? Well, look at the title of the sermon. Christ's anointing, our anointing. Christ was anointed. The oil flows down on the head, Christ, and flows onto the body, the church. So think about the history of redemption. Think about the history of the church. When, at what moment, and in what event was the church anointed with the Holy Spirit? Can we think of a a once-for-all redemptive historical event in which the Holy Spirit was poured out from on high onto all the church? When did that happen? Well, it happened at Pentecost. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 verse 4. And they were every type of person. These were not just Jews, but they were converts from every nation and tribe and tongue of the known world at that time. It was the church Catholic which was gathered there. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter explains what's happening. This is the fulfillment of the old prophecies. God said in the Old Testament through Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Everyone will participate in this divine anointing. Sons and daughters, young and old, male and female, the whole congregation of God's people. What happened on Pentecost Day, Pentecost Sunday, was the fulfillment of that longing of Moses when we read it in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. He said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That would be awesome, Moses said, if one day the Lord would anoint all of God's people. Well, it happened, didn't it, at Pentecost. And that reminds us, brothers and sisters, of the massive difference between the Old and the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, all believers are anointed to office. Not just the minister and the elders and the deacons, all believers, you all carry a divine and holy calling from God to a special office. And in the Old Testament, it wasn't like that. In the Old Testament, God's people were governed by kings and and, uh, taught by prophets and ministered to by priests who had that special anointing for office and none others. What does John say? The apostle John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, he says to the church, You have been anointed by the Holy One. He says it to the people he's writing to. He says it's to you. You have been anointed. Which means that you are a Messiah. That's what it means. Messiah means someone who is anointed. 
And your baptism reminds you of that. Your baptism reminds you that you belong to the body. Your baptism reminds you that you are a truly Pentecostal Christian, that you know and share in the glorious reality of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Your baptism reminds you that you are privileged to belong to a community of faith upon which the holy anointing of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ was poured out. And you share in that. Each one of you, old and young, male and female, boys and girls, little children, little babies, share in that anointing. We are all messiahs. Now, it's a little bit awkward, isn't it, to use the word messiah because people think of messiah complex. And, and nowadays, messiah, if somebody says, I'm a messiah, that means I'm a savior. You can, I can save everyone. And a messiah complex is you can fix all the problems and solve everybody's problems. That's not the meaning of Messiah in the terms that we're dealing with it and in the scriptures. Not talking, we're not all called to have a Messiah complex. That's, that's not true. But we are called to be Messiahs. That means anointed people. People that have an office because we share in the anointing of Christ. So those are the first two lines of the catechism there. We're a member of Christ by faith. And we share in his anointing. So what does that look like if we share in his anointing? Well, it means that we have a job to do. It means that we have a high and holy calling. It means that we need to submit our wants and our desires and our pleasures and our self-interest to the office that God has placed upon us. If a firefighter who's on duty, is at home. Now, I might get this wrong. I don't know how firefighters do their thing, but, but if, I know in some cities around the world there are volunteer firefighters, and they're not necessarily always at the station. They've got their little beeper on. So they're at home, let's say, and they're watching a movie with the family, and the little beeper goes. And when that beeper goes, then it overrides almost every other concern. The firefighter can't just say, well... I'm sitting here with my little girl and my wife, and we're just watching a nice movie. I'm eating some popcorn. I think I'll just stay home. I'm not going to answer the beep. And so property will be destroyed and lives will be in danger because he doesn't give priority to his office. And we heard about that last week, how when office is neglected and when there is unfaithfulness in office, there is hurt, there is harm, there is damage, there is death. So the question the Holy Spirit puts before us this afternoon is this. Are you living with the acute awareness that you have a holy calling from God? Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaks about the Spirit poured out on the church and, and giving this glorious and wonderful diversity of gifts. The Spirit gifts us in different ways. It's a beautiful thing. And it's a good thing. And it's something to be celebrated and encouraged that we all contribute to the life of the body and to the kingdom of God in, in greatly and delightfully diverse ways. It's, it's, a, it's always an ugly thing when we try to impose on others what we want to do and how we want to serve the Lord with our gifts. That doesn't work. So there's lots of diversity. But there is something which is common to all of us. And those are the three offices that we have in the Lord's Day before us. We have a delightful diversity, but there is great unity in the fact that all of us are prophets 
and priests and kings. Now, what does a prophet do? A prophet confesses the name. A prophet confesses the name of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Look at Matthew 10, verse 32 for a moment and see what the Lord Jesus says about that. Matthew 10, 32 So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. God calls us, Jesus calls us to acknowledge his name. You have an office. You have a holy and solemn calling to confess, to not keep quiet about the Lord Jesus. But with your words and your actions and your choices and your priorities, our whole life either declares or does not declare the fact that we belong to Jesus. We need to take stock of our lives. We need to ask ourselves how we're doing in that office. What are we proclaiming? Romans chapter 10, verse 9, tells us that we simply cannot keep quiet. It is an impossibility. Romans 10, 9, if you're able to look at it quickly. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We get the believing in the heart bit down pat because we've got all the right doctrine, usually as Reformed people, often. That's not enough. The scripture tells us you have to take that faith and you have to confess it with your mouth. Now, our society tells us to to be quiet. Our society tells us if you're a Christian, that's fine. That's nice for you. But we don't want to hear about it. Keep your faith to yourself. But God says, don't keep your faith to yourself. You must confess with your mouth. Part of the reality of our salvation is speaking up and saying, I believe, I believe Christ is my Lord and my Savior, saying it with our words and with our actions and with our attitudes. Now imagine Jonah in Nineveh had kept quiet as a prophet. If he had walked around Nineveh with his beliefs and the Word of God just tucked away safely in his heart, thinking, yeah, these people are going to be judged. They should really repent. But if he didn't say anything, what would have happened? They would have died. They wouldn't have been saved. The city would have been destroyed. He tried to do that in one way, and God told him not to. But what will my neighbors say on the great day of judgment? What will my unbelieving family members say? What will my colleagues at school or at work say on that great day? My brother and sister, may it not be That on that great and final day when they stand before the judgment seat of God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son, may it not be that they point at us and say, He never told me. She never said anything. We are called to be prophets. And we are called to be faithful in our office. And we're called to be priests. As priests, we're called to present ourselves as a living sacrifice of thankfulness. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that. 
means our bodies and our minds are wholly sanctified for the worship of Jesus. Only for you, Lord Jesus. For you and only for you do I live and do I think and do I act. And so, as priests, we don't pump substances into our bodies so that we can't think straight and lose sobriety. As priests, we keep ourselves pure for the worship of our Lord, and we don't take the fire hose of the world through the internet and through Hollywood entertainment and pump worldliness into our homes and our hearts and our minds, our minds and the minds of our children. If we are priests, we are called to be meticulous in seeking to live holy and pure lives in a perverse world. That's a high calling. Imagine the high priest in the Old Testament on the great day of expiation, he would go that once per year chance that he had of entering behind the veil. I think that that was mentioned this morning. And imagine that just before he had that incredible privilege of going into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, that he went and rolled around in some manure. That's unthinkable. He wouldn't make himself filthy like that. He had a job to do, a holy job. So he kept himself pure. And every decision about what he ate and what he wore and what he did and where he went was based on being faithful to his office as a priest. Well, what do we do? Brother and sister, I'm starting with myself here. What do we do? How much sin do we not tolerate and roll around in and think it's okay to come into the presence of God with that sin unrepented? These favorite little sins, which we're like, ah, oh, that's not such a bad thing. It's a little pet sin that I have that kind of clings to me. But God knows that no one's perfect. And so we just massage our sins and we tolerate them and we hold on to them. And our office as priest calls us to put a stop to that, to be holy in the service of the Lord. And finally, we have the office of king. We're in a fight. Kings keep the peace by destroying and defeating the enemies. And we fight, and we sang about that in Psalm number 20, we fight not in our own power, but in the power of God. I've often mentioned this, because I think it's a beautiful thing, that Luther, when he was tempted, would say to the devil, I am a baptized man. I belong to the Lord Jesus, so I can't do this. That's how he would fight against sin and temptation. If you turn to Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, where the apostle says this, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Spirit against flesh is a war. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you're a Christian and you're united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you know you're a Christian, not because you have no sins, but because you hate sin and because you're fighting with sin and you are in a life and death struggle with sin. As one of the great Puritan writers wrote, be 
killing sin or it will be killing you. The sin in your life, the sin in my life wants to kill us. It wants to destroy us and our relationships and our families. And it wants to destroy our eternal hope and separate us from God forever. Our sin is a malignant and a malevolent and hateful and dangerous enemy. And God calls us to a kingly office to fight sin and to kill it in the power of the Spirit. Now, we're really good at seeing other people's sins. It's so easy, isn't it? Don't you find that? It's really easy to look at other people and say, wow, I can start counting all the sins that they've got to work on in their lives. But the Holy Spirit says, mind your own business about other people. Start with yourself. There's lots of sin around us. It's easy to denounce. But the office that God gives us as kings is to fight with a free and good conscience. That means that my sin is dealt with, first of all. And that's the hard part. We can only do it in the power of the Spirit. Brother and sister, keep confessing the truth. Be a prophet. Keep bringing sacrifices of thankfulness. Be a priest. Keep fighting sin. Be a king. Did we do it perfectly this year, 2020? No, we didn't. There's no way we did it perfectly. But we live, and we confess, and we sacrifice, and we fight in the power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's our hope. Because all our mistakes and negligence, our mess-ups and our sins, our rebellion, our spiritual laziness, our lack of progress and sanctification, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ washes it all away. Every year, every day. We begin 2021, because next Sunday is going to be 2021 already. We begin next Sunday or next year as we begin every new day with a clean Slate, a holy, innocent, pure, obedient, faithful child of God. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. A faithful prophet and priest and king, perfectly faithful to your office. That's who you are in the power of the Spirit of God. You are perfectly holy in Christ, in the power of his cleansing blood, in the power of his transforming spirit. So Christian, in that power, keep going. Speak up and live for the truth, prophets. Sanctify your heart and your home and your life, priests. And pick up your weapon, kings, and fight sin. Because you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our job. That's what we've been called to to be and called to do. That is what you've been anointed to do. Amen.